Last week, Pastor Farrell set up the series and did a great job of that, laying out clearly where we're going, being very charitable and talking about other perspectives and approaches. This evening, we'll be considering the kingdom of God as a theme, the kingdom of God as a theme in the scriptures, and particularly the way this theme begins at creation and then is developed through much of the Old Testament. We won't quite go through all of the Old Testament, but we'll cover the first part of that uh, this week. It probably sounds like a lot to cover, and indeed it is a fair bit to cover, um, but we're going to keep at a fairly high altitude, try to only cover those most essential pieces, because the last thing I want is for us to for me to drag you through a whole bunch of material and us to end up and you just be confused and exhausted and not really to have learned anything. So I'll try to stay at a high level, but still cover the material and hopefully it will be helpful in orienting us to the topic in preparation for future uh, installments in the series. So two encouragements. First encouragement, I know it's a big topic, but I'm going to try to make it digestible. And a second encouragement Understanding the theme of the kingdom of God will certainly help you to have the right context for understanding the millennium, but even beyond that topic, entirely apart from that topic, understanding the kingdom of God, that theme as it runs through scripture, will help you to put your Bible together, help you to see the way the various parts of the Bible fit together, how there's a unified story that runs from beginning to end. And I say all that just to encourage you that even though we're going to be moving through a fair bit, work hard to stick with me tonight, to lean in. Um, I'll try to make it digestible, but then you, you work hard to stay engaged. So the first part of our orientation to the kingdom of God tonight is, we're going to start with an orientation here to the kingdom, the millennium and the kingdom of God. So why address the kingdom of God in this series? Why would we back up and start there. How is the kingdom relevant to a series on the millennium? And why focus on the first part of the Bible when the most important chapter related to the millennium is the third chapter from the end, Revelation 20? Why would we go all the way back to the beginning and get a head start like that? Well, on the one hand, The millennium is primarily, the discussion about the millennium is primarily about, at least the focal point, is Revelation 20. But, on the other hand, the millennium is really one part of a larger theme, and that theme is the kingdom of God. It's really important to keep in mind. This is not just some random chapter in some random period that just comes out of nowhere in the book of Revelation. This is closely connected to so much of what is at the heart of the Bible. To say it another way, the discussion about the millennium is embedded in, or it's set within the theme of the kingdom of God. Questions about the millennium are essentially questions about how God's kingdom plan unfolds, how it's fulfilled, how God's plan to establish his reign over all the earth through his human vice regents, is being fulfilled, and how that will be fulfilled. That's essentially what the millennium discussion is about. And because this theme of the kingdom of God is that larger context to understanding the millennial reign of Revelation 20, 
if we have the time to, it's, it would be short-sighted to just jump right into the minutia of the discussion and not understand that larger context. So understanding this theme of the kingdom of God and seeing how it's developed through the scriptures will help you to track with the discussion about the millennium. And then even more generally, as I mentioned, regardless of questions about the millennium, understanding this theme will help you to understand how the whole biblical storyline flows, how it holds together. So, understanding the theme of the kingdom of God in the Bible is an important foundation for understanding the millennium. Now, let's move to our next orienting consideration about the kingdom of God, and that's the kingdom from creation to new creation. The kingdom from creation to new creation. I've mentioned several times that understanding this theme will help you understand the whole Bible, how all the parts fit together. But why is that the case? Is that not an overblown statement to suggest that this one theme will help you understand how all the pieces fit together? Well, one could very plausibly claim, I don't want to overstate it, but it it seems likely that the kingdom of God is the most central topic of the whole Bible. It certainly permeates every portion of the Bible. You might think of it like the backbone of the Bible. Now let's quickly preview how this theme runs through the whole Bible from beginning to end. And I emphasize preview because we're going to be spending the rest of tonight and the next couple weeks actually doing that, walking through and seeing the development. But I just want to show you by looking at the beginning and looking at the end that it's present in both places. It runs from beginning to end. We see this theme at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Humans reigning over creation on God's behalf is at the center of God's purpose for humanity. God's purpose for humans in his creation is that they would rule over creation on his behalf. In just a few minutes, we'll look at that and see that in the text. But since we're going to do that in a moment, I'm not going to take you there now. So that's at the beginning. Kingdom, the kingdom theme is central at the beginning. And we also see this theme at the very end of the Bible. It's actually with this very theme that the description of the new creation, the new earth, ends. So you might think of the new creation being in Revelation 21 and 22. But really, everything after 22.5 is kind of the conclusion to the book. 22.5, 22 verse 5, is the last verse describing the new creation, the new earth, the eternal state. And the very last statement in that is this. This is how it concludes. And they, referring to the saints, contextually to the bondservants of God, this new humanity Christ has redeemed, they will reign, kingdom language, they will reign forever and ever. So here is the consummation of it all. When the plan of God at creation is brought to completion, and what do we find? We find God's purpose for humanity fulfilled. They're ruling on the earth with all creation under their dominion. Reigning over the earth is what God's redeemed new creation people will be doing through all eternity. So this theme of the kingdom of God is prominent at the beginning of the Bible, it's prominent at the end of the Bible, and explaining the trajectory of this theme between these two poles, 
is what we're going to spend much of our time tonight doing in in coming weeks. Now, what I've said so far about the theme of the kingdom of God, specifically it being sent a central theme in the Bible, that it runs from beginning to end, that much isn't controversial really in the discussion about the millennium. All three positions, whether pre-mill or all-mill or post-mill, can agree that this theme starts at creation and finds its ultimate fulfillment on the new earth. You know, when I say all three positions, you guys are obviously aware that every position has some outliers, right? Uh, but when I speak of them, I'm speaking about their strongest version of them. The strongest version of all of them would affirm that the kingdom finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new creation, on the new earth. The amillennialist and the postmillennialist understand the kingdom to be significantly fulfilled before Christ's second coming, right now during the church age, but they also understand the kingdom to reach the height of its fulfillment on the new earth. And the premillennialist understands the kingdom to be partially realized now, before Christ's second coming, and even more significantly fulfilled during the millennium, that period of time between Christ's second coming and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. But the premillennialist also understands the kingdom to reach its final consummation on the new creation. So this is not an issue that distinguishes the views, but it is part of the larger context that we need to keep in mind as we consider this topic. So, the kingdom theme starts at creation, is fulfilled in the new creation, and nearly everything in between is about or related to the outworking of this theme. So having seen the relevance of the theme of the kingdom of God to a series on the millennium, and the importance of the kingdom theme to the whole Bible running from beginning to end, the last thing we'll consider just in terms of orienting us to the, the topic is the meaning of kingdom. What does this kingdom language mean? From all I've said so far, you've probably inferred basically what we mean by the kingdom of God. But let me be explicit and give you here a concise definition, not leaving you simply to infer it. The kingdom of God is God's reign over the earth through his human vice regions. God's reign over the earth through his human vice regents. Vice regent is simply one ruling with a delegated authority. Regent, a ruler, vice reigning under, right? It's like a vice president to a president. So here, a vice regent to a regent. It's a one ruling with a delegated authority. God's the ultimate king, the big king, the big capital K king. But this is throughout scripture sort of a a foundational assumption, it's generally not at center stage, if I could use the metaphor of a play. The fact that God is king overall is a foundational assumption, not doubted, sometimes affirmed, sometimes explicitly stated, and it's always kind of there at the backdrop. But it's not the thing that's at center stage. It's not the primary focus. What is at center stage is that God has delegated this rule to humans. This is the piece of the theme that is at center stage. It's the primary focus in Scripture. Now, notice how our definition holds those two together. God's reign, so the one who's ultimately the king, the ultimate sovereign is God, but God's reign over the earth through 
his human vice regents. And that through the human vice regents is really a lot of what kind of takes up the the drama of the biblical storyline. So clarification here. I think we have it up here. I don't have anything up there for you. Just under the meaning of the kingdom, a clarification here about the, the our English word kingdom. So think about the word kingdom and the different meanings you might associate with it. Probably the most common meaning we associate with the word kingdom is something like the realm or the territory over which a king rules. So referring to the realm or territory over which a king rules. But another meaning we sometimes associate with the word is the reign or the rule of a king. The rule itself. The first meaning you might think of as more static and territorial. The second's more dynamic, referring to the reigning activity or a ruling activity. And it's that, that latter meaning, the more dynamic meaning of the activity, ruling, reigning, which is the meaning the word kingdom has in most of its uses in the Bible. It sometimes refers to a territory, but most often it refers to kingship or reign or rule. Therefore, when you see the word in the Bible, you should usually think, granted there are some places where that word group means the territory over which rule is exercised, but most often when you see that, you should think the reign itself. Can you see how the dynamic meaning of the word has come through in the definition here? Let me go back to the definition we had. Notice it's not just the territory over which God reigns, but God's reign itself. Now, there's still obviously a territory involved. The territory involved here is the earth. But the focus is on the rule itself. So kingdom of God is essentially the reign of God. You hear kingdom of God, think reign of God. And that needs a little bit of explanation because the word kingdom has evolved a bit over time in the English language. And the the meaning of the dynamic meaning of reign or rule is often considered to be an archaic meaning for the word these days. It was a very common meaning. In fact, the most common meaning when our English Bibles were first translated in the 15 and 1600s, but since it's become less common, and yet because of a conservative impulse in revisions of Bible translations in English, we've retained that word, even though it often doesn't mean that. So it's helpful to have a little clarification there about the meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible, specifically meaning the activity of reigning or ruling. Okay, so as we've come to the end of our orientation here to the theme of the kingdom, I hope we've accomplished the first goal, which was to orient you to the kingdom of God theme as an important category in the Bible, and then to briefly explain what it means, what this theme entails And now our second goal, to which we'll now turn and which we'll spend the rest of our time on, is seeing how this kingdom plan was established at creation and then how it was subsequently developed in Israel's history. So let's turn to that now, the development of the kingdom. So two major portions for tonight. First, an orientation to the kingdom, which we've just covered. And then secondly, the development of this kingdom theme which is where we'll spend the rest of our time tonight. So first, under the development, the establishment of the plan. We're going to look at the establishment and development of this theme in six phases. 
So the rest of our time tonight will be looking at six phases in the development of this theme. In the first phase in the development of the kingdom plan is the establishment of the plan. So let's go to Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to put a lot of verses up here for you, so you're having to look at a number of verses, but it might be helpful to have this open in your own Bible. Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to see God's kingdom plan at the beginning before the fall. The kingdom plan precedes the fall. It wasn't simply a part of God's redemptive plan. It actually was part of his original creation plan. And the main thing I'm going to want you to see under this phase is that a central component of God's plan for creation was humans reigning over the earth. That was a central component of God's plan for creation. And for the sake of staying focused, because there's a lot here in chapters 1 and 2 that we could look at, but we want to stay focused on considering this theme, I'm going to draw our attention to five observations about God's kingdom plan in these chapters. We'll just focus on five observations here. The first observation is ruling over the earth was one of God's primary purposes for creating humans. Take a look at Genesis 1.26. I have it up here on the screen for you too if you haven't turned there yet. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, in order that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we see as God deliberates about making humans, what is the functional purpose for humans that's considered? It's ruling over the earth. Let us make man in order that they may rule over and then all of creation. So we can see here that ruling over the earth was one of God's primary purposes for creating humans. But notice that this this purpose isn't only linked to the creation of man generally, in which case it could simply read, let us make man in order that they may rule. But it's specifically linked to making the creation of humanity as God's image, according to his likeness. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness in order that they may rule. So the functional outflow of humans being created as God's image is that they represent him. Right? That's functionally what an image does. It represents something. And in this case, with humans imaging or representing God, it's not primarily his, his appearance that they're imaging. It's his kingship. It's his rule that they're representing. So they image God. Here we can see pretty clearly. Let us make man in our image. For what purpose? In order that they may rule. So that ruling is connected to the function of representing him. The representation is realized primarily in ruling over creation on God's behalf. So the first observation from these chapters related to the kingdom of God is that ruling over the earth was one of God's primary purposes for creating humans, and it's the explicit purpose for creating humans as his image. Now, if you could remember just one thing, one of these observations from Genesis 1 and 2 about God's kingdom plan at creation, 
This is the one you should remember. Now let's move on to observation number two. Other significant themes in these chapters relate to and support God's kingdom plan. So there are other things being stated in Genesis 1 and 2 besides just the ruling, reigning function of humans. That's there. But I want to show you that those aren't just sort of some parallel independent themes that are part of this constellation of themes that are all independent, but that these other major themes are related to and even supportive of this kingdom theme. And I'm going to draw our attention to two of these other significant themes. The first is the theme of multiplication. The theme of multiplication. So we just read Genesis 1.26, where God's deliberating about creating humans. Then in verse 27, there's the report of him actually creating the humans. And then in verse 28, he gives them this blessing or this, really, it's got imperatives, it's command, this um, commission that he gives to humans. I think I have that up right here on the screen. There we go. Genesis 1.28. And you'll see there are five commands. I've underlined them for you. Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over the creatures on the earth. And we've already looked at kind of those second two imperatives there. Those are ones that clearly relate to ruling. But those first three, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, all kind of hang together. They're related, and they all sort of relate to multiplication. That's the theme I'm referring to here. The theme of multiplication is picked up in those three. And what I want you to see is that this theme of multiplication isn't kind of independent and on its own, it's actually subordinate to and supportive of the theme of ruling. The relationship should be pretty obvious between ruling and the theme of multiplication. You have two people, Adam and Eve, and a vast earth over which they need to progressively extend their dominion. This is going to require multiplication and spreading out. So the ruling task they're given requires the multiplication. It's supportive of that task. So the first of these significant themes that relate to and support humanity's task of ruling the earth is the multiplication theme. A second theme is the Garden of Eden being a special place on earth. You might think of it here as just the land theme. If you called the first theme multiplication, the shorthand for this one could just be land. And we see this in chapter 2 of Genesis. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read particular texts. We've got to move through this quickly. So I'm going to summarize the situation for us. God creates the whole earth, but then he makes one part of it, the Garden of Eden, a unique place. It's clearly distinct from the rest. It has a bit of a unique function. It's got a unique appearance. It's a unique place. And when you think of the garden, don't think of your little vegetable garden, think of like a large European garden. Trees, those types of things. It's a cultivated place. You might almost think of the whole earth generally as being somewhat of a wilderness, not yet cultivated, and God gives the garden to them as pre-cultivated. It came to them pre-cultivated. It was already ready. This little bit was already ready for them. The Lord's already cultivated it and thus gives them a head start in their task. You might think of it like a foothold or a beachhead on this vast wilderness that is the earth from which they can begin their task of exercising dominion. 
I hope that's helping you kind of get a vision for what, how the garden is functioning in relation to the rest of the earth. The task of the humans is not only to maintain the garden. Track with me here as we keep think, considering the scenario as we find in Genesis 2. The task of the humans is not only to maintain this garden, but to extend its boundaries until they've taken dominion of the whole earth and cultivated the whole earth. You say, where do we see that? There are a number of places we could look, but probably the simplest way to point this out to you is considering two parallel observations in the text. On the one hand, Adam and Eve are commanded to cultivate and keep the garden. Right? That's Genesis 2.15. They're commanded to cultivate and keep the garden, which basically means stay there, right? Don't leave the garden. You've got to cultivate and keep it. But they're simultaneously commanded to spread out and fill the earth. Right? How do they do that? Unless, as they're cultivating and keeping the garden, they're actually extending its boundaries, they're cultivating the edges, so that increasingly more and more is contained within the garden, more and more is under their dominion, in a part of that garden. Now, as we consider this scenario, it's important to keep in mind that even though a lot of the imagery here is that of landscape, right? The difference between life in the garden and life outside the garden so far has looked primarily like a difference of landscape. Inside, there's big trees, it's cultivated. Outside, it's a wilderness. But there's so much more going on here than this. Within the garden is where God dwells. It's a place full of blessings. The garden is where fullness of life is found. And that's because that's where God is uniquely located on the earth. The presence of God and the blessings that attend his presence were not found equally throughout all the earth. There was like a higher concentration, you might think of, in the garden. In fact, as far as the text indicates, that's where he was located. That's where blessings were, in the garden. That's where fullness of life was found. And the task given to humans, as they extend the boundaries, was really, as they're extending the boundaries of the garden, they were also extending the sphere in which God was present and where his blessings were found. Until the garden extends over the whole earth until really the whole earth becomes a place in which God dwells and where his blessings are found. This is, for example, what Isaiah has in mind when he writes about a future time when God's kingdom is reaching completion, and he writes about this in Isaiah 11.9, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. People will know the Lord throughout the whole earth. How comprehensively? As the waters cover the sea. That's, that's the end point. That's where this is all heading, but we're still at the beginning looking forward to that. But you can get a better idea of what the trajectory is by considering what Isaiah sees ahead. So let's summarize this theme of the garden being a special place on the earth. God's presence and blessing start in a unique place on the earth. And humans are to extend the presence of God and his blessings outward, mediating his presence and his blessings to the rest of the earth. Let me just insert parenthetically here a category to help you as we keep moving along. That function of mediating God's presence and blessings outward 
where someone, someone has access to the presence of God and those blessings and then mediates that outward, that's essentially a priestly function. And so even though priestly language isn't used explicitly in Genesis 1 and 2, that's conceptually here. And it's not surprising, therefore, when we see Adam's role being picked up later, we see priestly language as well as kingly language being invoked because both kingly roles and priestly roles are brought together here in Adam. And the way that they fulfill that priestly role of extending God's presence and blessings outward is specifically by extending their dominion, by extending their reign and their rule outward until it encompasses the whole earth. So this concept in Genesis 2 that there's a unique place of God's presence and blessing on the earth, which humans are to extend until it engulfs the whole earth, this relates to God's kingdom plan, his plan for humans to rule the earth on his behalf. So just to draw us back, we're looking at two other themes in Genesis 1 and 2 that seem to be other than the theme of ruling, but yet I'm saying are directly related to the theme of ruling. The first was the theme of multiplication, which supports the theme of ruling because they need to multiply if they're going to extend that rule over the whole earth. And the second one was that theme of place or land, a special place. And that relates because that's where they start their ruling. They first rule over that and then they extend it until it encompasses the whole earth. So seeing these other themes helps us to see the importance of the ruling theme in God's plan at creation. Now let's move to a third observation about God's kingdom plan in Genesis 1 and 2. At the end of God's creative work in Genesis 2, God's kingdom plan was not complete. It had really only just begun. His kingdom plan, his creation was complete. The kingdom plan had only just begun. The humans had a task to complete. You see, because there was no sin before the fall, and in that sense it was perfect, we might be inclined to think there was nothing left to be done, that it was a static situation to be be maintained, that there was no task to be completed. And that's understandable, right? If it's perfect, what, what work can be done to make it better than perfect? But it's clear that while there was no sin, there was still a task remaining to be completed. The task of reigning was given to the humans, humanity, Adam and Eve at this point, and that they needed to extend that over the whole earth, involving multiplying, extending the boundaries of the garden as they spread out until God's presence and blessings fill the whole earth. So that's all I'm going to say under this observation, this third observation. God's kingdom plan was not complete. It had only just begun. The humans had a task to complete. Now a fourth observation. This rule was intended for all humanity. This rule was to be exercised by all humanity, not just one person, not just one human, or even just a small group of humans. When we think of reigning or ruling, and particularly when we associate that with kingdom language, we're probably inclined to think of monarchy, right? Or or some sense in which 
There is a one human ruling over the rest, or maybe we might allow for a group of humans reigning over the rest, but that tends to be the way we think about it. But this task of exercising dominion, of reigning, of ruling, was given to Adam as a representative of humanity. It's in the name. right? Adam, Adam, means mankind. So God gives to mankind, to humankind, this representative of all his descendants who are going to come, the task of ruling. It's a task that belongs to all humanity, not just a subset or one of them. So the fourth observation is that this rule was to be exercised by all humanity. And again, if, just to make some connections here, remember that verse we saw in Revelation 22, 5? That they, all of God's people, this new humanity, were reigning forever and ever. And the last observation we're going to make from Genesis 1 and 2 is that obedience is necessary to the task. Obedience is necessary to the task. Obedience to the Lord is necessary for humans to fulfill their role. Now, this might sound rather basic, but it's very important to keep in mind, for this principle is really at the heart of the drama of the kingdom plan, of God's kingdom plan. And at this stage in the story, this principle is based on the presence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in the garden to flush out or to expose any desire to rule independently. That humans trust the Lord and obey him is really essential to their task as vice regents. Right? They aren't ultimate sovereigns given the earth to do whatever they want. They're ruling on God's behalf. And so it's essential they maintain that. If they begin to try to rule independently, take the, the resources stewarded to them, and rule independently, the whole plan falls apart. At that point, God needs to deal with them. They can't continue to advance this plan. The whole plan falls apart. And that's just what happened, isn't it? They decided they wanted to rule independent, independently. They didn't want to trust the Lord to tell them what was best. They wanted to venture out and determine what was best for themselves. They wanted that knowledge of good and evil for themselves. So as we're considering this theme of the kingdom, its start at creation and its progressive development in the early part of the Old Testament, we've noted five observations from Genesis 1 and 2. And I've intentionally spent extra long on this stage because it really sets the agenda for the rest. It was also partly in the title I was given, Anticipated in Eden. So I felt free to spend a little extra time there. But we're going to have to blitz through the rest now. So let's move on to consider how the kingdom plan unfolds. The second phase is the threat to the plan. The threat to the plan. At the end of the last section, we just observed that the obedience of humans to the Lord is necessary to their role as vice regents. But as you all know, they didn't remain obedient. They rebelled. And this rebellion problematized this kingdom plan in some very significant ways. So I want to specifically look at three ways the fall threatened the kingdom plan. Three ways the fall threatened and problematized God's kingdom plan. And we'll move quickly through these. The first way, multiplication was made difficult. You guys will remember that one of the punishments for their rebellion was that conception and childbirth would be made more difficult. 
And yet a, an essential component of this kingdom theme was the need for them to multiply so they could rule over the whole earth. So obviously it's a threat to the kingdom plan. A second way the, threat, uh, the fall threatened the plan was that dominion was made difficult by the curse to the ground. So go back, remember the plan? Extending the boundaries of the garden until it encompasses the whole earth was an important part of their task of taking dominion. But one of the punishments, Genesis 3.17, for their rebellion was the cursing of the ground, making this task of working the ground and exercising dominion over it more difficult. Finally, and most seriously, the most serious threat was that they were alienated from God. Their rebellion alienated them and all humanity from God. The first humans had rebelled against God. They were entrusted with this, and they basically, use a metaphor here, kind of engaged in a mutiny, seeking to rule the earth according to their own wisdom for their own ends. And the problem for God's kingdom plan, considering that he's the big king and they're ruling under him on his behalf, the problem is obvious. And this alienation is seen in the text as they're expelled from the garden. To make some connections to later in Israel's history, we might say they are exiled from the garden. The place of God's presence. And this was massively problematic. I hope you can already see it. If the whole purpose is to take the, the reality in the garden, the reality that God dwells there, and that that's where blessings are and to extend it out, now the very people who are supposed to do that are outside of it. They aren't even there. So really, the, the task has come to a halting stop. It can't make any more progress. From this point on, the first need in restoring God's kingdom plan is for this rebellion to be pardoned, for them to be reconciled to God, and then reinstated in their human vocation. That's important to realize. Any attempt to fix the problems of the fall that bypasses the need of humans to be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God is going to founder on this reality that this is the most foundational problem. And as you think about various, various realities we rejoice in, like Christ reigning, and then right alongside that, rejoicing in realities that are more personal, like that we've been forgiven. Sometimes it might not be clear how those two relate, but, but the way they relate comes together right here. That God's big plan is this kingdom plan, and yet we can't participate in that until we've been forgiven, reconciled, and reinstated in that plan. So that's why when you get to like Paul's epistles, and he drills down, on the details for us personally. The first thing is we've got to be justified. And then when we've been justified, Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That reconciliation comes about. Now we can have access to the presence of God. And then positional sanctification really is that reinstatement in the human vocation. We're again dedicated, consecrated to that task. So as you can see, the rebellion of Adam and Eve was no minor hiccup in God's kingdom plan. The effects of their rebellion struck at the heart of that plan. But God didn't stop there. Next, we have the restoration of the plan. Our third phase in the development of the kingdom, the restoration of the plan. 
From here on, God's purpose is to restore and complete what he began. Notice those two pieces, restore and complete. It's not just a matter of completing because it's like a train that's come off the rails. It's got to be put back on the rails first. So that's the restore piece. But just because it gets back on the rails doesn't mean it's complete. It wasn't complete from the beginning. There was still a task to be done. So both pieces are needed, restore and complete. And the one thing I want us to see here is the one indication we're given in chapter 3 of Genesis about how God will get his kingdom playing back on track. In Genesis 3.15, we find the curse pronounced on the serpent, and it really begins in verse 14. So verse 15 is the second half of this curse pronounced on the serpent. We read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, the serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here we find, without much explanation, a cause for hope. The Lord says there will be a particular descendant of the woman who will deal a lethal blow to the serpent, the one who instigated this rebellion. So in many ways, at this point in the story, the serpent's like behind it all, right? He's, he's emblematic of all of this rebellion and this problem. He was the one who led it. And by dealing this lethal blow to the serpent, this will bring about the end of the rebellion and open the way for humans to fulfill their task. So the restoration of God's kingdom plan through the rest of the Bible will entail more than this, meaning it's going to be filled out with more detail. But this hope for a future individual who will play a critical role in restoring and completing God's kingdom plan, this will be at the center of it, at the heart of the plan to restore and complete the kingdom plan. Now let's move to the next stage of God's kingdom plan, which is the promises to Abraham. So looking at these six phases of the development of the kingdom, number four, the development of the plan with Abraham. The promises to Abraham are, could, we could spend a long time on them. They're exceedingly important to the storyline of the Bible. So we're going to be very focused here. We're going to focus on just four promises to Abraham that advanced God's kingdom plan. And even as we focus on these four, we're going to simply focus on the dimension of them that contributes to the kingdom plan. First, the promise for descendants. God promises to Abraham a multitude of descendants. You'll remember, Genesis 1.28, there was the commission to multiply. Genesis 3.16, the threat that now conception and childbirth would be difficult. That threatened the kingdom plan. Here, God's ensuring this kingdom plan is going to continue by promising, despite the threat, that he will multiply Abraham's descendants. God here promises he will overcome that threat so that he can advance his kingdom plan. Notice how this commission that was for all humanity, right? We said the commission to rule over the earth was for all humanity, and yet there's a sense now as God's sort of restoring and getting this kingdom plan back on track he sort of narrowed it down now to Abraham and his descendants. Well, how is that going to accomplish the task of all humans reigning? Because humanity in general is living in rebellion, they simply can't carry out the plan. Remember, that was one of the observations we made in Genesis 1 and 2, that obedience is essential. Therefore, with these promises to Abraham, 
the Lord sets about redeeming a people for himself, a people who will be loyal to him and who will rule creation on his behalf, not rebelling and, and doing it for their own ends. You might think of this people promised to Abraham as a new humanity, a new humanity that the Lord's going to raise up to rule over the earth. So we can see that God's promise to Abraham of a multitude of descendants relates to and advances God's kingdom plan. A second promise here, the promise of land. Just as the, the Garden of Eden was this special land given to Adam and Eve over which they would rule and from which they would extend the presence of God and the blessings that attend that presence to all the earth. But that was, of course, threatened by them being exiled from the garden. The Lord's reinstating that here with this promise of land. This land promised to Abraham will be a special piece, place of, piece of land because God will dwell there in their presence, bless them there, and then from that location, they're going to extend the boundaries until their dominion is exercised over all the earth. So like the promise of a multitude of descendants, the promise of land is part of God's kingdom plan. From this land... The, this new humanity will begin their rule and extend it outward. A third blessing, or sorry, a third promise that relates to the development of the plan with Abraham, that is the promise of blessing. The promise of blessing. God promises to bless Abraham and his descendants, but not only will they be recipients of blessing, they'll be conduits of blessing, agents of God's blessing to the whole earth. Through him and his descendants, God will bless all nations, he says. And I hope you're making the connections now back to Adam and Eve in the garden already. Just as Adam and Eve were blessed by living in God's presence and were tasked with extending those blessings outward to all the earth, so also Abraham is told that he and his descendants will live in this special land where they'll be blessed, but they also have a task to extend those blessings outward to all the earth. And they're going to extend those blessings as they extend their rule. So again, a third promise to Abraham that clearly has relationship to this kingdom theme. And then finally, the fourth promise, the promise of kings. I point out those first three promises because you may not have made the connection with those first three promises to God's kingdom plan, but the fourth one's pretty obvious, isn't it? God promises to Abraham kings. He promises he will raise up among Abraham's descendants kings. Seems pretty straightforward. The descendants of Abraham form this new humanity. They're going to be a great nation. And so it seems obvious they're going to need a ruler, right? They're going to need a king to lead them. And God promises among those descendants there will be a king who will lead them. But the question may occur to you, if all humans are supposed to reign over the earth, and this nation promised to Abraham will form that new humanity, shouldn't they all, all of this new humanity, all of Abraham's descendants be the ones who are reigning? What's the role of these kings within the nation? Has the broader goal of all of them reigning been abandoned? And the short answer is no. That broader goal has not been abandoned. God's plan is still that all of his new humanity will reign. That's still his plan. But in the process of establishing this reign, God appoints leaders for his new humanity, given to this new humanity to lead them all to fulfill their human vocation of ruling. They're floundering. 
Humanity on its own is struggling. And so here comes a leader, kings promised, to lead them into that vocation. Yes, there is a sense in which these kings will be out in front of the rest of this new humanity in their ruling, but not simply so that they can stay out in front and monopolize the ruling, but so they can lead the rest to take on and excel in their role of ruling. This is conceptually related back to that promise in Genesis 3.15 of a future descendant of the woman, an individual who will play a critical role in restoring and completing God's kingdom plan. At this stage in the story, it seems reasonable to connect this promise of kings back to that promise for an individual such that we can expect that individual will be among these kings. And that connection is made even more explicit in Genesis 22. We're running out of time, so I'm not going to open up there. But after Abraham comes well through that test with Isaac, sacrificing Isaac, the Lord kind of recommits the promises to Abraham. And there we find side by side, side by side, two promises that might seem in tension, but that are held together. One, we find a promise of a repetition. So we find a repetition of the promise for a multitude of descendants. That's still the plan. Still a plan for a multitude of sins, not just one. But right alongside that, we find the promise for a particular descendant, an individual who will lead the nation in conquest, he'll have the gates of his enemies, and through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So both of these promises, a new humanity and then this individual who will come along to lead them in that and through whom they'll all be blessed are held together. So wrapping up Abraham here. The promises to Abraham are all related to and advance God's kingdom plan. It's through Abraham's descendants that God will create a new humanity that will reign over the earth and the Lord promises kings from among those descendants who will lead the way for this new humanity to fulfill their human vocation of reigning. And a particular one of those kings will be sure to bring this to fulfillment. Getting to the end here, now the development of the plan with Israel. The development of the plan with Israel, this is kind of the next high point in God's kingdom plan as it's developing in the Old Testament. Really, the nation of Israel inherits the promises to Israel. Sorry, to Abraham. The nation of Israel inherits the promises to Abraham. So there's not a whole lot to repeat here, because all of those promises carry over. So I'm just going to focus on two observations about God's kingdom plan in the covenant given to Israel at Mount Sinai. You guys remember, they come out of the out of Egypt in the Exodus, go to Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with them there. Two observations. The first observation is that the whole nation is designated kings and priests. You can jot this text down, Exodus 19.6, Exodus 19.5 and 19.6, in two verses, really summarize the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant. And in uh, verse 6, the whole nation of Israel is designated kings and priests. Thus we see again this element of God's kingdom plan that God intends all of this new humanity coming through the descendants of Abraham to rule, not just one of them or just a small group. And now another observation here. Obedience is necessary to their role. So really a repetition of the observation we saw in the garden. 
And this could come from many texts in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Trusting obedience to the Lord is necessary for Israel to carry out its intended role as kings and priests. Just as in the garden, without trusting obedience, God's kingdom plan of having humans reign over the earth on his behalf is impossible. It falls apart. So those are the two observations about God's kingdom plan as it relates to Israel. And now for the last phase, at least of the phases we're going to cover tonight, the development of the plan with David and his sons. When we advance to the stage of the story with David and his sons, little needs to be said because when we've seen this backstory, when we've got this, this context, the Davidic kingship fits right into this like hand in glove. It's incredible how when you keep in, in view that progressive revelation, the progressive unfolding of God's plan, how little explanation is needed for each new stage because you've got so much of the foundation already laid. So the only observation we need to make about God's kingdom plan as it relates to David and his sons is that David and his sons fulfill the promises of kings made to Abraham. Right? We saw David is promised I'm sorry, Abraham has promised kings, but it could be among any of Abraham's descendants. And here we learn that they're going to come specifically through David's line. David's told that those kings God had promised to Abraham would come through his line. And this includes that promise for an individual king from Genesis 3.15, who will be extra special to this kingdom plan. We might call him the ultimate Davidic king. Keep in mind that this doesn't remove the plan for all of this new humanity to rule over the earth, but it indicates that these Davidic kings, at least the faithful ones, or one, will lead the new humanity into their role of ruling over the earth. So that's the the establishment, really the, the threatening, the problematization of the kingdom plan, and then some subsequent stages here in its development in the Old Testament. So as we come to the end of this portion of the development of the kingdom plan, we've seen that we come up to David, David's promised these things, and really in David and in David's son Solomon, we see, I think we could say, a considerable progress in the plan. The boundaries of the land have been extended considerably. There are foreign nations under their dominion, bringing tribute to them, they're blessed richly. The temples established, God's dwelling in their midst. Gold is worth nothing because it's so. there's so much prosperity in the land. Blessings are being extended outward. Really, we're seeing the, the kingdom plan advancing apace. But when these kings began turning from the Lord, leading the whole nation to do the same, the progress made was reversed ending with the nation in exile, expelled from the land, just as Adam and Eve were. But the story didn't stop there. The prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to a time when the Lord would restore and complete his kingdom plan. For that, you'll have to come back next Sunday night. That was a lot to cover, but I hope that was helpful. I hope you at least were able to retain some of that, packaging it like that. Um, Before I dismiss you, let me thank the Lord for our time together. Lord, we are 
immensely thankful that you didn't abandon the plan when we messed things up in Adam, but that you have graciously purposed to redeem rebellious humans, reconciling them to yourself, and putting us back to the task we abandoned. Lord, we are thankful for Christ, that ultimate Davidic king, who has opened the way for that, who leads us in that task. We want to be faithful in that task, as it is ours in the new covenant. And we long for his coming. We pray, Lord, that he would come soon and continue your kingdom plan. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.